again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Welcome to Think Again a program presented to you by Borderlands Cooperative, an organisation working for social change for over 25 years. I'm Jacques Boulet. And I'm Jennifer Burrell. This is our 218th programme, and today we're returning to one of our regular themes, that is the failed political-economic experiment of neoliberalism, and how this experiment continues to be a force even while it has become so obvious that we can't leave the public good, our common wealth, to the interests and operations of private capital and its profit, profit motive. Mm, as, as we've seen, it just doesn't work. I covered this last week in relation to the Victorian government's plans for housing, which don't include building more public housing, but which do include selling off public land to developers. Which, by the way, their plans we really need to stop. Yeah. On the 8th of September, we looked at the private profiteers that are supposed to support job seekers, but who punished them instead. Mm, and, and as a double injury, they do so with our public money. In late July, we looked at poker machine reforms stalled by private owners and operators who are profiting from their gambling customers by pushing them into addiction. Yeah, and back in April, on the 21st, I spoke with John Falzon from Per Capita, who is so eloquent in exposing the double-faced lies of neoliberal capitalism, which pretty much blame the disadvantaged and powerless for their own predicaments. And even earlier, on the 3rd of March, we talked about the systemic collusion that makes all of this possible, a class war being enacted both in full sight and behind our backs. Mm. So, with all that in mind, and continuing this thread, today we're taking a look at some of the neoliberal forces that have been powering the No campaign opposing an Aboriginal voice to Parliament which, of course, most of us are voting on in tomorrow's referendum on the 14th of October. We're also looking at what it means to be a stakeholder in the creation of government policy in the overall context of neoliberalism. So to start off, the last issue of the Saturday paper looked at the role that the right-wing think tank Centre for Independent Studies, or CIS, plays in the No campaign and how some big business interests put their weight and dollars behind that campaign. The article by Mike Seacombe is titled The Libertarian Think Tank That Helped the No Case. The case is put pretty well in the introduction. So to quote, a think tank led by some of the country's most influential business figures has been instrumental in building the No campaign despite claiming it doesn't have a position on The Voice. 
And we are, of course, very aware that there's a more radical or progressive no campaign telling us that a voice to parliament will not be effective and it doesn't go far enough. For example, because it lacks a treaty as its formal basis. Yeah, but what we're talking about is quite different to that no campaign uh, today. That's right. We are talking about the no campaigners who are worried that Aboriginal people would gain too much power mm. with a formal voice to voice the Parliament, hence calling the referendum racist and divisive. And we're focusing on some of the vested interests behind that no campaign, as well as the role of the Centre for Independent Studies. Yeah. So to start with, the no campaign, supported by the capitalist neoliberal side, has a complex structure. Its fund has been rather shadowy and secretive. There are three main entities involved in the neoliberal no campaign through funding and also ideological and organisational support. So, number one, let's start with where the big donors put their money. That's Australians for Unity. Australians for Unity is a fundraising vehicle for the no campaign associated with the big end of town. Importantly, it's the only specifically anti-voice vehicle where donations are tax deductible. And I think of that really as Australians for unity of the rich, <laughs> to help me remember. Two, so number two, then we have the Fair Australia anti-voice campaign, which gets its money from the fundraising vehicle I just mentioned, Australians for Unity. The Fair Australia anti-voice campaign resulted from a merger of two campaigns, Warren Mundine's Recognise a Better Way and Minister Jacinta Numpijin Price's Fair Australia. So they merged and kept the name Fair Australia, which I think of as Unfair Australia. <laughs> Let's keep unfair Australia. So, number three. Importantly, behind all this is Advance Australia, set up in 2018 to be a right-wing version of GetUp. Advance Australia provides administration for the campaign Australians for Unity. Sorry, the fundraising vehicle Australians for Unity. Um which is the fundraising vehicle for its Fair Australia campaign. And if anyone was in doubt about how, how close these entities are, Advance Australia and the fundraiser Australians for Unity are registered at the same residential address and their directors are identical. And while, <clears throat> and while the rich donors to the right-wing no campaign are secretive, journalists, journalists have uncovered some of them, and they include Brett Rolf, the founder and managing director of Jet Couriers, Sydney multimillionaire Roddy O'Neill, Marcus Blackmore, who recently sold his vitamin supplements empire or company, mm -hmm. former stockbroker and wealthy and wealthy fund manager Simon Fenwick, and the storage company Kennards. Yeah, so there's uh, quite a few, a mm. few of the big players. Uh, they certainly are. Mm. And as for the Centre for Independent Studies, its position on Aboriginal issues has been pretty clear for many years. 
and it must be said pretty consistent with the neoliberal ideology that the free market should be left to address all social issues, which are, of course, normally seen as issues relating to individuals and, and the responsibility of individuals. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when there is disadvantage, it's ostensibly people's own fault. They should have adapted and taken up the opportunities offered to them by the neoliberal economic system. Or as one rather notable member of the conservative think tank, thanks, because he has been with a couple, Gary Johns, exclaimed at a No campaign event two weeks or three weeks ago, and I quote, they, Aboriginal people, they should learn English, lest they die before turning 21, end of quote. This need to adapt postulate we critiqued on our program way back in April under the heading of Lies of Neoliberal Capitalism. Mm. And in relation to Aboriginal people, you'd think that would have been a throwback to the yeah. 1930s. You know? Yes, exactly. So as Mike Seacombe said in his Saturday paper article, quote, for almost 20 years, the Centre for Independent Studies has produced research detailing the failures of Australia's Indigenous policies. This has been coupled with contentious advocacy for the full integration of First Nations people into a market-based society." Unquote. Very well put. As an example, Seacom cites a 2005 report from a senior fellow at the CIS, Helen Hughes, who said that deprivation in remote Aboriginal communities comes from, quote, the socialist remote communities experiment that has been central to Australian separatist policies for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, unquote. Hmm. So her right-wing arguments against separate education, housing, governance and law, and against welfare dependence are pretty much echoed by Minister Price, who fronts the Fair Australia anti-voice campaign along with Warren Mundine. Obviously, given their views, it's no accident that the Centre for Independent Studies has proactively championed Price as well as Mundine. Back in 2016, the CIS selected Jacinta Price to deliver its annual Helen Hughes talk for emerging thinkers. At the, at the time, Price was a local councillor, fairly unknown outside Alice Springs. In her speech, she blamed Aboriginal culture for many First Nations problems and said Aboriginal people should look at the part that their own people played in their demise, rather than looking for constitutional recognition or tre treaties or governments to solve their problems. And to quote journalist Mike Sikom again, and I quote, On the strength of that speech, she was made Indigenous Program Director at the CIS. From there, it was a rapid rise. Price won a seat as a senator for the Northern Territory at last year's election and was now made Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians. End of quote. And, and as John Fain uncovered in The Guardian, she was elected with very little support from Aboriginal people and mostly on the strength of white, Darwin and Alice Springs voters. Yeah, and Fain holds back on calling it tokenism. Yeah. 
So now we'll go for a break with a rather poignant song, giving us a maybe a small window into understanding the importance of connection with culture. That's Make More Spear from Frank Yammer. Oh 
You're listening to Think Again on 3CR Radio, 855 AM on your dial, and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Today we're talking about the big money forces behind the neoliberal side of the No campaign. Yeah, thinking about the bankrolling of the right-wing No campaign by a wealthy elite, one thing I learned from uh, many years of gambling policy research was to look at the reaction from vested interests to any proposed reforms, how are they responding to it? Yeah, nowadays those elites are also known as stakeholders, mm. but the wealthy elite holding a rather large stake, obviously. Yeah. If gambling corporations were fighting the proposed reforms tooth and nail in the past, you could be, or even today, you could be pretty sure that these reforms were likely to be effective. They were likely to reduce gambling harm and, of course, reduce their profits in the process. Mm. So when I see the millions being poured into a campaign, or hundreds of thousands at least, uh, being poured into a campaign to ensure that Aboriginal people will not have a direct, regular and respected voice to a parliament enshrined in the Constitution, this signals to me that at least these wealthy captains of industry think a voice would be effective and potentially damage their interests. Or at least these reforms might bring some of their interests into question mm. and probably open the floodgates of other demands for participation. Yeah, Jacques, we can't have anything nearing real participation. <laughs> That's right. We? It became even more problematic from the point of view of those captains of industry shareholders, basically, when some of their big company names started supporting the voice of Parliament. Think, you know, the voices of Qantas, BHP, other miners, West Farmers, the three groceries, Megalith, and the banks. They all were basically said publicly that they were supporting the voice. Mm -hmm. What better way for those who really profit from the operations of these operations, that is major corporations, corporations yeah. yep, that, that is their major shareholders and owners to semi-secretly sabotage their, sub, their public support for the voice and maintain the ideological and political opposition to it by, fu by funding it via their so-called think tanks, yeah. and I mean their think tanks. Yeah. So so, Jacques, could you give a few examples? Well, there were some of the banks, for example, and BHP. Which ba the, the big banks? The, 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 four, the four big ones. Uh -huh. yeah, they, all of those, they actually do support CIS. Mm -hmm. And so does BHP and so does Reinhardt. Mm -hmm. uh, and they basically therefore help CIS publishing so-called research and other misleading information. And they can count on the murdocracy and on social media as echo chambers. Mm, so enmeshing large parts of the population in their ideological nets in the process. Absolutely. In the midst of all of this, it would be wise to remember that the voice would be an adv advisory group to parliament, that a parliament would be obliged to at least listen to, that the process, therefore, would be open and accountable. Yeah. And if the advice was not considered by Parliament, the parliamentarians would then at least have to explain why. And it may not be perfect uh, and only a small step, but contrast 
such a voice to Parliament with other ways we attempt to influence government policy in our campaigns, like marches in the street or get-up campaigns. That's right. Surely an advisory group to Parliament, legitimised and enshrined in the Constitution, would be a few steps easier. Or, or Jacques, a few steps closer to the decision-makers, um, a, a few steps closer than calling out from the streets mm -hmm. for them to change what for politicians to change what they're doing That's right. and what they're putting in place. Even while, of course, public protests play an important role in creating change. Absolutely. We wouldn't want to do away with them. No. But that may also be the real reason for conservative and so-called stakeholder opposition. On the one hand, in political ideological terms, the decolonization process cannot really be stopped anymore. Most support, up to more than 60% for the voice, comes from those under 50 years of age. Mm. More truthful information about Australia's past and a rapidly growing body of evidence about the atrocities we, and you know whom I mean with we, committed, mm -hmm. is now available and passed on through education, media and the arts. For example, last Saturday age, on the 7th of October, has reviewed or had reviews of David Marr's book Killing for Country, a family story, and had uncovered Marr's ancestors' involvement in the Queensland frontier wars. That also has a root that same Saturday age, uh, and on the same page really, uh, has uh, a review of Miranda Rivu's Sunbirds book, a partly historical novel that does the same describing the effects and the influence of Dutch colonization in Indonesia. Mm. So there's a lot at stake for the elites to prevent the flow of historical truth and its aftermath starting to influence political developments of which the voice could just be the beginning. Yeah, maybe a chink in the damn wall. Yeah. Again, also to complement the picture of why it is so necessary to hold as much information back as possible, in the last, again, Saturday Age, pages 4 and 5 in the business section, has Millie Moroy and Clancy Yates' report on the Qantas crisis. And as the title of their article says, puts social license on the corporate agenda. Yeah. So, so, Jacques, mm -hmm. with social license referring to the acceptance or approval of a company's operations by the public mm -hmm. or, or by local communities and people affected and other stakeholders. <laughs> and um, it refers to social approval and permission. And not surprisingly, the concept arose in relation to mining industries, but also others causing harm in different ways. So it's about a social permission to operate. That's you know, correct. Yeah. To exist. Yeah, yeah. So the neoliberal imperative to only and just concentrate on profits, that is, profits for shareholding stakeholders, is, however slowly, being replaced by another maxim, according to Meroy and Yeats, that the long-term success of an organization is built on strong support from all stakeholders and not just the elite owners. Mm. And below that article in the Saturday Age on the 7th of October is another uh, very, I think, quite important 
bit of information. Our regular informant, Ross Gittins, who finally seems to have discovered, and I quote the title of his piece, Nine Planetary Boundaries Set the Limits of Global Economic Freedom, unquote. Can only say, wow. Yeah. So, is that referring to donut, donut economics that we talked about way back in 2019 yeah, yeah. about the planetary limitations That's correct. to our economy? That's, that's right. It was Gate Robert who actually borrowed that idea from uh, John Rockstrom and Will Steffen in 2009. Uh, it was that they brought out the first results of their ongoing research into what our ways of living were doing to the environment. Yeah. And that tra they translate that in, in nine areas which where we should not breach into uh, our capability to uh, maintain our ecology, basically. Mm. Peter Costello, <laughs> when he would have l looked at those two pages in the age, he probably, being the chair of the board of nine entertainment, which is the owner of the age, he must have been napping when these two articles were allowed in. Yeah. Yeah, and, and of course, as you said, Shark, referring to the massacres of Aboriginal people to clear the way for white settlers mm -hmm. and the growing awareness that companies need a social licence to operate <laughs> and may be called more called on more to do that in the future. That's right. So it becomes really obvious that from all corners, the capitalist economic lies are very rapidly becoming apparent as the neoliberal veil cannot manage anymore to cover them. So conservative think tanks like the Centre for Independent Studies and others, together with the Murdocracy and other mainstream media, they have their work cut out in defending the status quo. And obviously there are no holds barred. Mm -hmm. If even conservative and liberal reactionary politicians and meek-hearted company boards threaten to become more aware of their social license and of the planetary boundaries and other possible limits to their profit-making, they probably need a bit of ideological help from the think tanks they also fund yeah. quite generously. Yeah, that's right, like the CIA, Centre for Independent Studies, but also, Jacques, the secretive structures where they can channel their money to the no campaign <laughs> and other business-aligned causes while hoping, while, while at the same time hoping no one notices. That's right. Preventing the voice from happening may just be their attempt at stemming a possible tide of others wanting more say in politics. Mm -hmm. Indeed, if a system loses its legitimacy and the loyalty of its constituents, it may not persist much longer. Or, of course, that could just be the dreaming of an unreconstructed 60 hippie. Mm, no, no, Shark. I think it's a reality coming from a new wave of awareness and activism, even if it's sometimes two steps forward and one step back, mm. or vice versa. <laughs> Which brings us to our community announcement for today. We remind listeners that tomorrow, Saturday, 14th of October, all Australians on the electoral roll will be asked to vote on uh, a quest this question in the referendum. So the question is, a proposed law to alter the constitution to recognise the first peoples of Australia 
by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Do you approve this proposed alteration? So that's what voters will be asked to answer yes or no to. Mm -hmm. Borderlands is backing the voice. We also have had one of our collaborators, Abdi, who has been doing a lot of work with the African communities in the West, uh, particularly to explain basically what uh, the whole referendum is about and to also encourage them to uh, support the vote uh, because it is a step in the right direction. Thanks for listening to Think Again on 3CR Community Radio and for all your encouraging feedback. If you want to send us a message, you can email Borderlands, borders at borderlands.org.au. Our past programmes are available by podcast on a variety of platforms and via the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. Meanwhile, please enjoy Milkumana by King Milkumana. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.